Thank you for that girl. The podcast project of the finalist. By Leopold Lambert. Today, publishing manifesto, the medieval archipelago with Eileen Joy. Today, my guest is Eileen Joy, who's the director of Plankton Books and the co-founder and director of uh, Babel Working Group. Hello, Eileen. Hello, Leopold. Pankton Books is an amazing publishing house that, uh, among among other uh, very interesting things, is um, publishing their Phenobolis pamphlets and Phenobolis papers that uh, uh, listeners might be familiar with. Um, and uh, maybe, Eileen, you can uh, explain a little bit to us what's, uh, uh, in brief words, what, what is uh, Pankton doing? Punctum is um, attempting an experiment or an adventure, I like to say, in what might happen if scholars and other intellectual artists who may or may not be situated in the university took over the reins of the modes of their own publication, in a sense, right? So it's kind of like instead of academics sending their work off to corporate or university presses, where they actually lose quite a bit of the control over the material, both its quality of editing and also what it is you're allowed to say, right? Um, what if the faculty took the press back unto themselves and became the captains of their own industry? But also for us at Punctum, especially important was to put forward a radical mode of openness not just open access, anyone can download these books for free, but openness on the other end, openness to getting published and to publishing anything, you know, as long as it's of quality, so that no author would ever be told, no, that's the wrong subject. You, you cannot write a critical work on Coleridge as a prose poem. You know, like we wanted to have a publishing house for weird works, that are technically academic and intellectual and cultural, but might be doing really risky and even strange things with the forms of the text. Um, adventurous, taking risks, you know, all of that. So we, you know, so for instance, one of my favorite books that we published recently is Ostroneni, which is a Russian word for being estranged from home. And the subtitles on shame and knowing, and it was written by M. H. Bowker, who didn't want to put his full name on there because it was very personal. The main body of the text was a poem about his mother's death, and the footnotes were a kind of memoir about discovering something in his mother's belongings that revealed something of her that he had never known. But it was also a critical academic essay, using all sorts of psychoanalytic and other types of theory to talk about the relationship we have to our parents and how it's connected to issues of shame and not knowing who we are. So it was academic essay, poem, and prose memoir, but in the form of footnotes to the poem. 
So that's, to me, a good example of, like, the kind of thing we want to do. And the author is an academic who works at a university and has published very conventional academic stuff, but this was a book he also wanted to write. And who else would publish that, right? Because um, it isn't quite creative writing, and it isn't quite academic essay. I see. And uh, I, I suppose we'll come back at some point to the, to the idea that there's there's uh, maybe a blurring of boundaries between uh, disciplines and topics and, mm -hmm. and way of uh, categorizing things, which in the end might be a, a very narrow way of doing things. And I think Pengtum is is trying to um, is trying to fight to fight against that. And I'm personally extremely thankful to have to have those uh, little pamphlets and papers uh, published with Pengtums um, and. Uh, Since it's a series of podcasts about uh, publishing, I think we can we can indeed start um, we can indeed start about that, and maybe draw from there a broader vision of um, of um, the academia or uh, things that you've been uh, you've been engaged with and uh, have been writing about, talking about, thinking about, and um, so. But let's let's. Uh, Let's go back to the beginning, and uh, well, maybe one of the interesting questions, since no title can possibly be neutral, what is what is a punctum? Right, punctum. I have to give credit to Nicola Moshandaro, a professor of medieval studies at Brooklyn College, who came up with the idea for this name, and. He really loved it. It turns out, this is a funny story, you always, when you want to come up with a business name, the first question is, is anyone else using this name? It turns out there's a tiny little, highly specialized photography press in Italy called Punctum Press. Um, so we, but we love Punctum so much, we're like, we're not giving this up. You know, it's totally <laughs> hanging on. So, okay, we'll be Punctum Books. So, Nicola said, this is why this is our word three reasons. Number one, it's the Latin word for the hole that an awl makes, a spiked instrument, when it punctuates the vellum of a medieval manuscript in order to create the holes for the thread to stitch the book. So punctum means puncture in the medieval manuscript. So for Nicola that meant the instrument that makes writing possible because you can't write the book in the Middle Ages, you can't write the book until you make the book, which is kind of cool if you think about it. For them, it was like, first make the physical object, then write on it, right? The other reason was in Augustine's religious philosophy, he was a 5th century bishop of Hippo in northern Africa. Uh, he said there were two kinds of time. Uh, Cyculum, which is whole or eternal time, and punctum, which is the time of the moment or the now. So for Nicola, again, that meant punctum is the is the publisher of writing that is momentary and seizes its own moment. And then finally, from Roland Barthes' Camera Lucida. Punctum as the aperture of the camera, also the sting, the speck, the cut, um, the thing through which you know you kind of hone in on things. So punctum as the aperture, the thing that one looks through, but also the thing that wounds you. So writing that 
moves you, writing that is moving and writing that also displaces you in time. And, and the other idea, too, was we wanted a press that evoked the medieval and the modern. So through Barth, photography, a very contemporary or modern instrument, um, and Augustine, right, 5th century you know, bishop from antiquity. So there we have uh, a name that is medieval and modern and also relates to writing as making. I see. And um, talk, talking about media, medieval, something I didn't say in your presentation is you're, you're also what we can call a medievalist. And that's something I'm actually extremely uh, curious about. And I don't know much about. Uh, so I was, since, since in the various writings that I had the chance to read, um, it seems like you're advocating for a return to a certain amount of medieval schemes, so to speak. Um, maybe could you could you could you could you tell us a little bit more about what what is a medieval model and maybe in general and in the in the realm of academia and publishing? This is one that I'm not going to talk about too much, partly because I'm still trying to think through that myself, mm -hmm. but I can think of two things in particular. One is, and you can see this on our website where we talk about the kind of writing we're interested in, and we, we're interested in a return to a proliferation of genres that existed before. People have this mistaken notion that A, time is linear, which it ain't, and that B, things get better, which they don't, and that C, Modernity is somehow more open, more free, more individualistically focused, that, that somehow we in modernity have access to tools and ways of thinking and being that are just so vastly supposedly improved over the past. And the past is, you know, the dark ages where life was nasty, brutish, and short, you know, and <laughs> people lived in holes in the ground and whatever, right? But actually, as a medievalist, what you realize is modernity and a lot of people have written about this, right? So this isn't like my thesis. I mean, really eminent mm -hmm. scholars like Zygmunt Bauman and Anthony Giddens and people like that have explored this notion that modernity actually represents a narrowing and a constriction of possibilities for individual expression. We don't have a proliferation of genres. We have a flattening out and a narrowing down of genres, right, mm -hmm. of ways to write. In the Middle Ages, they had so many genres and forms of writing, you know, from the breviary to the ABC Darium to the Book of Hours to the Commentary to the Florilegium. I could go on and on. Like all these just amazing ways of writing. So, uh, so one of the ways in which Punctum wants to be medieval is to return to the Middle Ages and to reboot the discarded forms that people think can no longer be taken up. But this also applies to what I call past modern forms and genres that have been discarded. The cassette tape, the reel-to-reel -reel tape, the inter-office memo on that paper where you had to, you know, when I, I'm old enough to remember when you had to have a piece of paper with another piece of paper and a carbon sheet in between. Mm -hmm you know, the triplicate um, mimeograph, right? So there are all these, um, the telegram, the 
Telegram is one of my favorites. I, I, wanted, I want someone to like do a series of telegrams that we could publish. Um, the letter, the letter, you know, yes, people still write letters, but increasingly they don't, you know, because you can send email. So what are the discarded, the supposedly discarded forms of writing and how can we kind of resuscitate that? Why, t- why do that? Pluralism. You know, democracy depends on a maximum amount of freedom to devise one's own expression. And you can't chuck all these forms. And you can see it today in so many businesses, music, movies, whatever. I mean, we just get more and more of less and less. Um, The other reason I see the Middle Ages as a site to kind of return to. It's, it's not really, it's not a return. It's not a nostalgically, mm-hmm. it's not some stupid nostalgia. for It's the, a scheme. It's a scheme. For me, it's, it's strategic. I call it making strategic maneuvers into the past to poach and steal shit and bring it back to the mm-hmm. present. To use um, on behalf of a more capacious and democratic and I would say, life-affirming present, right? To, to give people more tools mm-hmm. for conviviality in the phrase of even Illich. And the last thing I'll say on that, uh, to give an example of that, something like houses of hospitality, the idea of hospitality that was so important in the Middle Ages, the welcoming of the stranger, um, you know, that, the, that these are forms of thinking but also affect that can be repurposed in the present. Mm-hmm. And if I may jump in here in terms of medieval scheme, uh, I think I can resonate with uh, the idea of archipelago. I mean, it might more be an intuition than something very well thought, so I apologize for that. But um, what my incomplete vision of uh, medieval times uh, tells me is that there was, there was indeed a kind of... Uh, um, scheme of sovereignty that was more based on the idea of a cities and the idea of, of, na- of countries or nations. And a country like Italy is like... That's my favorite 150 case. years old, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it used to be a medieval, a medieval country until, until uh, Garibaldi. Uh, and, and I'm wondering if yeah. there's not something about that that's interesting as well in terms of our archipelago as a... As a sovereignty paradigm of maybe going back to this idea that the city as a territorial and share of something common like a, a sharing sharing a territory like that and and the mm-hmm. idea of their of the commune like the, the, mm-hmm. the Paris commune of 1871 mm-hmm. um, intuitively I feel there is something there that's also very very linked to their to the, to, the medi- to the medieval manifesto you're trying to come up with. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you, and I've always been enamored of Julia Kristeva's work, Strangers to Ourselves, where she makes an argument for us embracing, I think I actually quote her in the Ways Goose essay, uh, embracing a polyglot and shaggy cosmopolitanism. You know, that, that, that the most... Um, you know, to go back to the idea of the city-state, what you're talking about, even the Greek city-state. So everyone is a citizen of the city no matter where they go. 
So that, you know, and this was, she takes this from the Greek city-state model. So you're, you're always a Greek even when you're not in Greece. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, and I'm very enamored of that idea. I think cosmopolitanism is a site for a kind of radical politics of everyone belongs everywhere and the city is our home, you know, and there's no checkpoints or borders, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean there aren't distinctive places, but there's no policing of the boundaries between those places. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, a, there's an easy element to make that work, I would say, and it, it may be a, somehow a little reactionary idea, but I, I don't know. It's the fact that we only have one body, right? Mm-hmm. And like the body mm-hmm. can be only at one place at a time, so you could only be one that you can be only a citizen of one place because mm-hmm. depending on, on where your body is geograph- geographically situated. Um, I didn't know the text about Julia Kristeva, but I'll, I'll, I'll... It's a beautiful book. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely jump in it, for sure. Um, and uh, I, th- I think this, uh, this medieval manifesto involves as well what you call the academia in opposition to... Or maybe you're not the one making the opposition between the academia and the university, but um, we can maybe start talking about this idea that uh, the way we think of the transmission of knowledge, um, especially in a country like the United States where we are right now, where the tuition fees are pretty incredible and very prohibitive, what does this medieval manifesto, if I may call it like that, involve for this for alternative transmission of knowledge uh, schemes? So, if I understand this correctly, the question is, <laughs> Sorry. how? No, that's okay. Like, how how does the kind of the medieval um, the tactics of medievalism relate to transmitting knowledge? Um, Within within the framework of of the of the university, uh, as um, well, of course, the university is also a medieval institution, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the university itself—that's its second instantiation. There's an even earlier university uh, that originates in the in the Arab world, right? So that's the—I'm not the expert on this subject, but. From what I've read, the medieval university is the second university. And some people argue that we're entering a third phase. There's a group of people who are in a design futures program, and this is something Ed Keller knows about too because they're all architects and designers. And they started something, they started a program in Brisbane, Australia called Design Futures. And they created what they call the Ur-Matic University. And Ur-Matic is a mashup between Ur, the first city, which is like, if I remember correctly, somewhere in Iraq, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. and nomadic. So their idea for the so their idea for the university, which I have fully purchased, like I'm totally on board with this, is that those of us situated in the university today need to exit the kind of brick-and-mortar buildings that constitute specific institutions, whether NYU, Pratt, you know, et cetera, and become and re-embrace a form of nomadism and practices of translation where the university starts to wander again, 
So the university professor as an itinerant scholar who simply moves around with her household belongings on her back. So the Armatic guys are kind of rad. Right now, they are situated at Parsons, Carnegie Mellon in Australia and a few other places in England. And they have like a five-year plan. And they actually plan to walk out at a certain point. Um, And they've already been doing educational initiatives in some really interesting places um, where they think people need education and they don't have access to it. Um, But this this is a medieval idea too, right? Because the medieval scholar, Mm. there is an example of medieval scholars as kind of like men on horses who would go from city to city and they would have following following students who would follow them around. So um, one thing we have to think about is, but then of course another viewpoint which I also ascribe to is we can't abandon the institution of the university as it stands now. It needs to be almost, we need to lay a claim to it. We need to reclaim it and kind of reinvent it from the inside. But over time, universities have become monolithic institutions inside of which all sorts of strangulating bureaucratic managerial structures Mm -hmm. have practically bled the life out of creative inquiry and have also been incredibly damaging, especially to the disciplines that are more purposeless than others, right? So, you know, is your knowledge practical application-based or is it speculative? Is it artistic? Is it poetic? You know, I'm interested in poetic knowledge, and I don't know what the application of that is. Now, give me some time. I'm sure I could write a book about all the ways in which I think it's useful to living, but it's not the kind of argument university administrators want to hear. Mm-hmm. So going back to this idea of the medieval, right, the, uh, the city-state, being the citizen, we're all citizens of the same city, no matter where we are, the scholar as an itinerant nomad, again, carrying his household on his back, and going wherever he or she is needed to be. Mm-hmm. I can relate to that as we, uh, I was part of a group at Occupy Wall Street that actually was trying to create what we call the nomadic university and um, that ended being the Occupy University, which uh, it's not exactly the way I would have liked it to be, but well, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was not alone in this process. So. Um, and m- maybe one important aspect of your personality that I should uh, that I should present as well is that you, at some point in 2006, I believe, you you gave up on your tenureship and 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 took the risk of working uh, uh, completely under on on Punctum and Babel and and this kind of initiative, right? Yes, and it wasn't 2006; it was this year. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. No, that's okay. <laughs> Um, I declared my intention to resign in September of 2012, and my last official day of work was August 15th of this year. All right. So, and in order to devote all my energies to, yes, Punctum, and now we're getting ready to launch a record label, as you know, that Dan Rudman is the director of. Mm -hmm. Who is and a Dan P- Rodman is with us right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> he just happens to be here. <laughs> Hello, Dan. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, and we have some, you know, we have aspirations to do all sorts, you know, we're interested in possibly founding some kind of new school at some point. And actually one of the editors of Continent, Isaac Linder, 
drew up a kind of vision prospectus for this university and sent it to 30 people and asked us all if he tried to make this happen, would we climb on board with him? And I was like, yes. yes. You know? <laughs> um, and we have, I was even talking to someone yesterday about Punctum maybe also starting some kind of media lab film you know, unit. So the idea is I had to quit my job in order to devote myself full-time to growing Punctum's various projects and Babel's various projects. And I was willing to quit my job to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, not everyone can quit their job. Now, do I have money? No. I had no savings beyond, are you ready for this, $2,100. Now, I have a retirement account, of course, because I was in academia for about 10 years, roughly, um, that I don't want to draw on and I don't plan to and I have a partner who has a job in academia who isn't going to kick me out of the house Mm -hmm. Um, but the most important thing that I had to do before I made this break was I had to get rid of all my debt Mm -hmm. that included walking away from a house that was as they say underwater mortgage wise that I tried to sell very hard for two years and then just said goodbye goodbye credit rating goodbye house goodbye original investment in house and I put all of my belongings in storage, and I got rid of every single cent of my credit card and other debt, which took a lot of work. I started doing that in 1999, and round about 2010, I zeroed out. And then it was just get rid of the house, put stuff in storage, and, and move forward and see what happens. And as long as I have friends' couches to sleep on and Anna feeds me, and I can, and if some people are willing to pay me to go from place to place to give talks, which they do, then I can eke out a living I don't really need. And I never thought I could do this. I used to think things were really important. I'm a person who loves, I love things. I love beautiful things. And I love my house. It was a 1923 Craftsman bungalow, and it was filled with a life's worth of gathering of objects and things that I loved to have around me when I did my work. But then I just said, I'm going to put it all away mm-hmm. and just try to do this live with your backpack on your back kind of thing yeah. and see if, you, you know, and it's the most freeing thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And I think it's we, also better for the environment, I'd yeah. like to point out. And Unfortunately, if, my carbon footprint is really bad because oh, I'm flying somewhere yeah. all the time. But... But I'm not buying shit anymore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and here, here in the U, I think we should probably not make the mistake of uh, thinking of it as a, a too much personal stories and actually what is part of uh, the problem and what you have to deal with when when you decide to to address the problem. Like uh, you mentioned, the idea of debt, for example, which is mm-hmm. an incredible, uh, an, an incredibly um, uh, restraining uh, element of American society and, and other Western countries as well. I think every single student in the United States should collectively default mm-hmm. on their student loan debt. Now, some groups there have was a formed call for it at Occupy, where which says like when when we reach a million a million people ready to default their debt, then we'll do it. Which I think they reached something like two hundred fifty thousand, not a million. Mm-hmm. But so it did not happen. But sure, I know. And I know some people that have been trying to make that happen. And there's also a group 
that raises money to pay off student debt, you know, and things like that. But yeah. Stri- strike debt. That exactly. Strike. That yes. I, I, I invite anybody to look at that. There, it's called the Rolling Jubilee, and uh, maybe talking about it very quickly, it's basically it basically buys medical and student debts based on donation money, but mm-hmm. at the price of the market, which speculates on the debt, which is another incredible problem related to debt. It's like it's it's actually there's actually speculations, financial speculations made on debt. And the Rolling Jubilee is therefore taking your $100 of donation and buying up uh, $5,000 of medical debts to forgive it. So mm-hmm. it's one of... I, I think it's an incredibly admirable organization. Mm-hmm. But I also think everyone should be willing to default on their debt, mm-hmm. which I did with my house, and I'm not ashamed, even though I know some people think it's immoral. Mm-hmm. But I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so let, let's get back maybe to this idea of like uh, creating what before we started recording you called a pirate university and I want to quote you on that <laughs> because there's, there's a beautiful thing you wrote as a, as a manifesto uh, you say it's time for a subterfugitive vagabond gypsy para humanities let's get lost let's get lost now taking the humanities with us like so many suitcases portable libraries and sacks of contraband diamonds. Let's figure out inventive ways to radicalize and thus sustain the humanities by absconding with them to the streets, alleys, market squares, ateliers, lounge, coffee shops, bookstores, sofas, wine bars, clubs, kitchens, bedrooms, galleries, dive bars, park benches, garages, living room, deserted urban zones, and crumbling basements. That's quite a program. (laughs) <laughs> for a pirate university. Yes, that's that's the idea of, and the idea of contraband, I love the idea of contraband, the thing that you're not supposed to take across a certain place. And my image for that that I really love is when Walter Benjamin mistakenly believed that he was going to be captured by the Nazis and he was trying to get to the United States and if I remember correctly through Spain, mm-hmm. I'm not sure, and he had to quickly decide what to take with him, and he decided to take his writings, you know, and he put them in a suitcase. And there's a wonderful essay by a scholar by the name of Julian Yates, simply called Benjamin's Suitcase, which was published in Rhizome's journal, another wonderful online journal. And I like this idea of taking the property of the university it's jewels, the, the stuff that's really good, and, um, and running away with it to wherever you might be able to reestablish um, a gathering of teachers and students. Or I don't even actually, I actually hate the idea of teachers and students. I think um, even a pirate ship isn't the best example because most pirate ships are dominated by some kind of crazy overlord who pushes people off gangplanks and you know, rapes women and stuff like that. So we've kind of romanticized the idea of the pirate. They're actually pretty pretty freaking awful, right? <laughs> um, but, but anyway, but, just, but the idea of to pirate, to take without asking, and to take across, right, the waterway or the boundary between one country and another. Um, and then that product is supposedly illegal, right? The diamonds become the illegal thing that you're not supposed to either have or take with you. 
so, um, so the idea, and this goes back to Ed Keller, who actually, he was the one who originally suggested a university as a kind of pirate ship that would park itself in different ports, right? You know, here comes the pirate university. They're going to be docked here for a few weeks, and then they're moving on somewhere else. So I like that idea. Again, the idea of mobility. I, one of my favorite books is Nicholas Borio's The Radicant. Um, he is a curator at the Tate in London. So he's in, I don't know what his background is actually, but he writes about art, visual art especially. And he said, you know, uh, we need an alter modernity. It wouldn't have a specific direction. It would just be on the move. But the direction would be, we have to get out of here, right? So the idea is, and he uses all these different artists to talk about how this would work. He said the, um, and this is especially interesting, I think, for you, you know, you're French and you've lived in a lot of different places and now you're living in New York City and you work with all these people who work in different languages Mm -hmm. um, who are all trying to talk to each other. And one of the things you've done is you've brought those collective voices together through your blog and the pamphlets and the papers so that a kind of conversation emerges across different language and other divides. So Borio's idea is we have to get out of this modernity, you know, the neoliberal commodification of everything modernity. But if we say there's a specific direction that we're headed in, you know what that always results in, fascism. You know, I mean, getting everyone together collectively, and you know from the Occupy work how difficult that is. Mm -hmm. It becomes especially difficult when people want there to be a specific program, specific objectives, and where are we going. And Borio's idea is... We don't have to know where we're going. We just have to know we're going. Mm-hmm. It's migratory. It's nomadic. Mm-hmm. And no. And the other reason he likes the word translation, no one is wedded to their own ideas. The only thing you should care about is that anyone else would use them for anything. So translation. I write something, and someone else grabs a hold of it and turns it into an opera you know, set in a matchbox. I don't know what the hell that is, but it came from me to them across some kind of translating divide. So that thing has a life, and it moves through the world. What's important for us is to give up the idea of ownership of absolutely everything, including our intellectual work, and to just let things be translated over and over again. Mm -hmm. The minute you start insisting that you have property of any sort is the first step towards violence mm-hmm. and war. So you have to give up on the idea that anything belongs to anybody. And you don't have to have a direction. You just have to be going somewhere. Yeah. With, so, with well, everyone else, like John Cage, who once said, here comes everybody. That was one of his mottos. Here comes everybody. And for him, that was like a moment of hopeful, joyous expectation that this stuff is coming at me and the best life is one lived with absolute rapturous joy at that state of affairs which you do not control Hmm. but which you embrace that's where you embrace your family name as well right (laughs) (laughs) I I cannot see your name without without, uh, thinking how appropriate it is Uh, yes I wish my last name was Badass. Badass. Eileen Eileen A. Badass. Yeah. (laughs) It's still pretty nice. Eileen Joy. Um, 
so that that to insist maybe on on uh, what we're talking about right now that um, questions the idea of what I'm used to call transdisciplinarity, uh, what you prefer as co-disciplinarity, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a, there's, uh, a slight uh, subtlety that you can, uh, or maybe not so subtle, I don't know, that you can explain to us. And um, I th that's, that's, uh, that's something that's pretty fundamental to the work that's done uh, both on the Phenomenalist and Archipelago. And I, I have to say on a personal level, I'm, I would be quite uh, uh, embarrassed to have to answer to what what is it what is it about because uh, I don't think uh, I don't think trying to fit into one of those disciplines or categories is uh, is the purpose of those projects. But um, what I I I would say more than a manifesto. In my case, it's almost incidental. <laughs> it's it's. It's uh, it's not something that it's something that really happens as it is. But um, but on the on the other hand, uh, the codisciplinary codisciplinarity, sorry, mm -hmm. is uh, is fully part of this manifesto of yours. So can you maybe talk a little bit about that? I can. And first, I have to credit Jonathan Shu, who's a medievalist at George Washington University in D.C. because he coined that term. And I'm sure other people have coined it, too. I mean, terms are just out there in the air. But, you know, in the university for years now, we've been talking about interdisciplinarity, cross-disciplinarity, intradisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity, et cetera. And all of these terms have been useful in certain ways. They've also been inadequate mm -hmm. to both what's really happening in the university and we haven't often lived up to them. Like a lot of work that calls itself cross-disciplinarity isn't really crossing that far mm -hmm. or is doing so in ways that are kind of shallow and just so you can say you've done it, mm -hmm. right? So that's when cross-disciplinarity or transdisciplinarity becomes a discipline as well. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So Jonathan said he was thinking about, uh, again, thinking about the co as having both positive and negative valences, but we should embrace, embrace both, like mm -hmm. codependency mm -hmm. was one of his ideas. Like codisciplinarity would mean we're codependent with each other in ways that might be dangerous, sad, uh, harmful, but yet we are together in that. But it also means, um, it means you're not necessarily trying to cross, you're not necessarily trying to mash things up, combine them. You're not necessarily trying to master multiple disciplines, mm -hmm. but you're saying, I do this work alongside others who I may not agree with, who don't get me, and I may not even get them, but the one thing we're willing to commit ourselves to is that we won't harm each other. We won't denigrate each other. We will actually l make specific sites possible where we can do what we do alongside, para, beside, right? And you don't ever know what will emerge out of that. Of course, it has great risk. I mean, bad things could happen, but we'll embrace that too. So working alongside. So that's why I like the co, because it, it doesn't enforce a certain kind of mixture. It doesn't enforce this is how you shall mingle, mm -hmm. or this is how you shall listen to each other, or this is how you shall work together. 
but it does say we want to do this together. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in the university where people in different disciplines talk about which disciplines are more useful. You know, your work's interesting and smart, but this other guy over there is doing stuff I don't understand, and why are we funding that research? You know, that kind of thinking, Mm -hmm. right? So co-disciplinarity means that we'll not engage in that kind of practice of critique of what people are trying to do to seek knowledge and knowledge practices and art practices and speculative research and things like that. Um, And we want to do it in proximity to each other because universities are really striated. Think about departments. Like you go in every day to your department Mm -hmm. and the history people might literally just be, okay, in my department where I used to work, the foreign language department, a name itself that is ridiculous... I mean, most departments now have renamed, you know, the Department of French and Italian or whatever. But, but this phrase, foreign languages, is like out there, you know? <laughs> and um, meaning it's always, you know, we're the language and everything else is the other, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so the Department of Foreign Languages was right around the corner for me, and I never set foot in there in 10 years. 10 years. And I only spoke to one person in that department in 10 years. That's freaking crazy you know so the problem is the university kind of puts everybody into their discipline and it occasionally brings people together and says look we just got cross-disciplinary for five minutes isn't that amazing (laughs) everybody go back to your offices now and shut the door you know so I have this image in my head of a university that would be like everybody's doing their thing like one guy's brushing off Etruscan pottery shards and someone else is composing an opera and somebody else is thinking really hard about Hegel but there are no walls Mm -hmm. I mean I suppose if you're doing certain dangerous experiments then we'll put up some walls so I don't get splattered with your chemistry but other than that it's just like we're in there together and it's like I and I have to I have to look at the Etruscan guy every day and then maybe one day I bring him a donut and then we start talking and it turns out that his Etruscan pottery shard migrates into my thinking on Hegel and marvelous things happen. Donut as an object of sexuality, I like that. <laughs> They're also bad for you, so you know, public service announcement, do not eat donuts. Okay, and, <laughs> and for whichever country you're in, you can replace the donut by... You did not hear on Archipelago that it was okay to eat donuts. <laughs> <laughs> um... So we, 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 t- we talked about how, how your family name could not possibly be Innocent uh, Joy. And uh, something else that I could not help but notice is that you, you're, um, you're working closely with this um, journal that's been started by this uh, European graduate school students that are no longer students uh, called Continent. And uh, I could not help but see the connections there might be with the the continent and the archipelago, so I'm wondering what can one bring to the other uh, on a geographical metaphor. And I found this little quote of yours that in one of your texts you wrote about the continent and you say, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is part of the continent, a part of the main. If a cloud be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less as well as if a promontory were as well as if the manner of thy friends of, or thine own were any man's death diminish me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send me 
I'm sorry, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. I'm absolutely sorry for, <laughs> for, the, for the way I, I read English, but... Uh, you just reminded me, I just, you just reminded me that Paul Boshears, one of the editors of Continent, said that that quotation is one of the influences upon why they named the journal Continent. But, oh. when, but when I wrote that, I was quoting John Donne, okay. who was a 16th century poet and preacher and teacher, actually, at a school in London. And he wrote what he called Meditations, and that is from, I believe, his 23rd Meditation. And of course, it's kind of a famous... What I love about it is everyone remembers, do not ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, but they forget what surrounds it. Mm -hmm. um, so that colloquially, a lot of people think what that means is, um, you're next. If you hear the funeral bell ringing, you're next, buddy. You know, but <laughs> what he meant by it was, you know, what you just read, we're all a part of each other and any man's death diminishes me. If any piece of the continent washes away, a part of me is washed away. Mm -hmm. And every man who dies, I've lost something of myself, even if I didn't know him. And there's a line in, the, in Terrence Malick's film, The Thin Red Line, which is set in the Pacific Theater of World War II. And it has a lot of voiceovers. And there's a character played by Jim Caviezel, who's a private, who kind of gives up his own life to save his fellow soldiers. And in one of the voiceovers by Sean Penn, Sean Penn says, if I never meet you in this life, let me feel the lack of it. Mm. So... For me, that's kind of a motto. I see. And I think that John Donne quote definitely influenced why Continent chose this name. Because, again, you're talking this like they want to have this idea that, you know, we all live on one continent. You know, the outer edges of which is the only thing that technically bounds us, right? As opposed to all these other boundaries, nation states and stuff like that. I like the idea of the archipelago... Um, because, you know, I study medieval England, and England was and is an archipelago, mm -hmm. right? But it's, it's tried really hard to make itself a unified nation-state, right? And it has done so through a lot of violence mm -hmm. that continues to this day. So I like the idea of the archipelago, too, because it's this kind of, you know, this kind of uh, uh, amorphous and um, not orderly or sedimented grouping of sites that somehow are separate yet also belong together. I see. Um, since we come to pretty much the end of the podcast, maybe one last question would be for you to introduce very briefly maybe the last books that Punctum is publishing right now? Okay. <laughs> well, we're publishing Just so many a, books. Yeah, idea. well, we, we have a lot of projects actually ongoing right now. One of my favorites, though, that's going to be coming out in a week or two is called Then Long Folk To Go, spelled in a funny way, which is a snippet from the prologue to the Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. But the book is written by a professor of visual culture at the University of Edinburgh, Neil Mulholland, and Norman Hogg, a former student of his who's now in graduate school in Canada, and they wanted to write a kind of manual for the neo-medieval future, pre-modern. In fact, the subtitle of the book is 
investigating future pre-moderns with a little trademark symbol after it. And it's a hodgepodge text. The first chapter is a kind of novella that I say is written in the style of William Gibson's Neuromancer meets Philip K. Dick meets an advertisement you would see in a mall. And it's like this strange, you know, dystopic novella about how the future will be like the medieval past and everything will be trademarked and every thought that comes out of your head will have a product placement in it and all of this. And then the second chapter is a fake scholarly essay set in the year like 2016 after Wales, Scotland, and Ireland have separated from England. Mm -hmm kind of post-separatist, you know, and then it keeps going from there. And the book is just like, it's like wild. It's like a, it's like a roller coaster ride through all these different genres. Um, and it's, it's really smart, but also funny and strange. Um, and we just published a book called Fuckhead, which I like to say out loud a lot, uh, <laughs> sure. which is a, which is a wonderful little book about don't hesitate to repeat yeah. it if you... No, it's okay. <laughs> it's a wonderful little book about someone who has disability, and he's working through... He, the author calls it a faux memoir. It's really memoir, but then it's fictionalized, and then it's mixed in with meditations on characters in John Steinbeck and Faulkner and Dennis Johnson's contemporary book, Jesus' Son, who all struggle with some form of mental incapacity, I guess I would call it, and how he embraces being a part of this family of fuckheads in literature and film um, as a way of kind of having a new family because in his life, his own family is, you know, messed up beyond repair. Um, and we also just published Dominic Petman's Indivisible Cities, and this is my favorite description. He said, what if Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities was rewritten by Jean Baudrillard and edited by Roland Barthes, mm -hmm. right? And it's a wonderful phantocartographical missive, he calls it, from the Department of Incoherent Geography. So it's part travel narrative, part random comic musings on different cities around the world mixed in with a pseudo-romantic narrative about a man who keeps looking for the same woman everywhere he goes, mm -hmm. and she will appear sometimes and disappear other times. And it's a beautiful book. Yeah. Beautiful cover as well, origami cover, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There's also the, uh, the Penetrated Man, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we just published The Penetrated Male by Jonathan Mail, Kemp. Yeah, 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 it's okay. He's a London-based writer who actually writes fiction, and he's published two novels, but he had this Ph.D. dissertation that he wrote on thinking about masculinity through the sight of, for lack of a better way of putting it, the penetrated anus. Mm -hmm. And he's, uh, so, and it's a, it's a really interesting book. And he teaches at Birkbeck College in London. So, um, and, it's, um, and it reminds me, too, that we also did a book by Jean-Paul Martinon, who teaches at Goldsmiths in London called The End of Man. So now I'm, I'm, mm. I'm worried that now I'm the press for the books about the end of men and the penetrated man, and, but, or, but actually for masculinity studies, but I actually love it. And I, I love Jean-Paul's book because it's heavy, heavy theory about masculinity and sexuality mixed in with his own memoir mm -hmm. of being gay. And it's like 
fantastic. And both of these books are incredibly sensitive looks at what it means to be male, but beyond all the usual parameters that we think about that mm -hmm. through. So I'm, I'm actually really excited about those two books. But if, if we do consider the male as the figure of uh, on top of the uh, power relationships, then I should I think you should probably embrace this this agenda of, of ending of ending it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> In uh, a funny way, I think that's what both these authors are trying to yeah, do. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's the way I, I read them at least. Um, And uh, let's uh, let's say let's state once again that all those books are available in open access um, and print on demand. Uh, open access as a digital version and print on demand for the printed version. Um, I think uh, maybe maybe as a very last word, you can introduce this new project, Plankton Books, since we have Dan with us uh, here. You mean Punctum Records? Oh, Punctum yeah. Records, I'm sorry. Yeah, I will say briefly, just to plug Punctum Records, and Dan Rudman, again, is here with us today, um, who is the director of that. So punctumrecords.com, for those who want to look that up. We're in New York City, in fact, this week, because we have a launch event at the New School tonight, where we're bringing together Punctum Books authors, as well as a musician, Taft, who will be doing something for us for Punctum Records. And Punctum Records is a kind of, again, another adventure in sound publishing and seeing what might happen if a book publisher and a sound label got together and conspired to uh, provide a house uh, for independent musicians and bands and sound artists and noise artists and people who also write about sound and write about noise and do musicology and stuff like that. Dan, do you have anything else to add to that? Well, to talk a little bit about my own experiences and yes. why I think Punctum Records is so appropriate for uh, Punctum Books to grow into, um, I became inextricably bound to the eternal flame that is Eileen Joy in... <laughs> February of 2012, mm -hmm. and it was in attending Babel events that I, as a graduate student, found a real uh, renewal of my own um, love of being in academia. And a big part of that um, was the insistence on a lot of people in, in Babel that we are acting creatively. And um, in viewing my own work as, as creative and in seeing the stuff that Punkton does as creative, I think a logical extension of that is to, and of course breaking down genres, um, or proliferating genres, um, sort of compels us at, in Punkton. And as scholars, and as just people living in in the world to to extend what we're doing in publishing in punctum books to punctum to music mm. or other visual other art forms because we're all trying to do the same thing we all depend on each other in ways that is that are not readily apparent but we're working to to see that more and more and that kind of gives us strength to do what we are each doing individually because we're We're kind of advocating for each other's happiness, mm -hmm. um, so that's why I'm very excited about Punctum Records and think Punctum Books is the 
appropriate vehicle to uh, impress us. And we should also mention just really quickly, because Dan didn't say this, is that he's also a musician mm -hmm. and a highly talented musician. And I was kind of stunned when I was in Austin, Texas for this conference where we met and um, a former professor of Dan's said to me, Dan will be playing music at this venue, let's go hear him play. And I was like, oh my God, he's like incredible. And, and the only other thing to add to that is, so, so Dan's really unique, but he's like a lot of people in Babel, a lot, in that he's working on a PhD in Sanskrit, so he's an academic, but he's also a musician. So he's a creative artist, he's a scholar, and we refuse to put a line between those two things. But the other thing that, that uh, Dan didn't say just now, but we talk about it all the time, is we are doing these projects at the exact moment people are declaring the death of things. Musicians have actually had it worse than textual artists, though publishing is, you know, so everyone's like, you know, the book is dead. You know, the album is dead. The musician can't make a living on his music anymore because everyone's just ripping off music or listening to Pandora, so why do you need to even buy an album anymore? And so it's becoming increasingly difficult to make a living mm -hmm. as a band or a musician. Some people succeed with but traditional means. With traditional means. And same with the book. You know, like can the poet make a living as a poet? Can the musician make a living as a musician? Many people who are poets and musicians have to make a living doing something else. And then they try to squeeze the music in where they can. And it pretty much defeats most of them at some point and you just think of all the people we meet right you're like well I used to I used to be a musician but now I then I grew up and got a real job you know so we're also we're also like throwing the dice that's the other thing about punctum which I didn't mention a, a longer part of that quote from camera lucida where he talks about punctum he also says it's the cast of the die it's taking a gamble so this is a gamble it's a big one but um, I'd rather fail in good company mm. than not have tried it all. Mm -hmm. Well, I think Bart, Bart meeting Malarmé is probably a good way to end this conversation. Thank you very much, Eileen. Thank you, Dan.